the last time we talked about it, there was feeling that BA4, BA5 wasn't really starting to get a foothold anywhere. But now we are seeing that these two variants, which are our new Omicron variants, have gotten a foothold, especially in Europe. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Today in our ongoing series about COVID-19, Rain founder David Lawrence catches up with doctors Bill Lang and Fred Southwick. Let's listen in. Fred and Bill, once again, uh, thanks. And we have a lot of news to speak about. Uh, let's start with uh, a, a bit of a survey of what's new. So the big news that we've had in the last two weeks or so, there's two big things. One is the approval of vaccines. This is the first new vaccine authorizations that we've had in the U.S. Um, in several months. And and then there's also concern now about the variants BA4 and BA5. So just hitting the vaccine first, um, the uh, FDA's external advisory committee on vaccinations met on Tuesday and Wednesday. On Tuesday, they approved the use of Moderna vaccine in older kids. Now, you know, we've had the Pfizer vaccine for older kids for some time now, and this is just adding Moderna. In reality, it's not going to make much difference because the uptake on vaccine in the in the kids from five to six years old and up um, has not been that high. There's no rush on this vaccine. So um, it's unclear if, the, if adding Moderna to the mix on that is going to make a big difference. But the other approval that came Wednesday afternoon was the approval of both of Moderna and Pfizer for use in age six month to five or six, depending on which vaccine. Um, so now all children, actually all people from age six months up, are eligible for vaccination. Now, with the with the youngest kids, the six months to, to four or five years that are just newly approved, the issue is how much difference the vaccine really makes. There has been difficulty demonstrating that there is a significant efficacy in preventing significant or serious disease. Uh, but at the same time, these have been very safe vaccines. So I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of uptake we get on these vaccines. And then the second big issue is the BA4 and BA5 variants. As as you may remember, the last time we talked about it, there was feeling that BA4, BA5 wasn't really starting to get a foothold anywhere. But now we are seeing that these two variants, which are our new Omicron variants, have gotten a foothold, especially in Europe, where they are causing a new wave, so far a small wave. Um, they're getting a foothold in the United States where they are not replacing BA2.12.1, but they are replacing BA2. And as they, that happens, we are not seeing a new wave in the U.S., but we are seeing um, a uh, reduction in, in the resolution of the last wave. And then we're also seeing BA4, BA5 causing significant increase in cases in China. Now, they still say they have very few cases, but they're also shutting down Shanghai and Beijing again just after they opened. Um, So it's going to be interesting to follow this BA4, BA5. It's about as infectious as BA2.12.1 and may have 
additional Delta-like um, characteristics, but I'm gonna, I'll let Fred talk a little bit more about that. Good, well, first to talk about the vaccine. Uh, I actually was going to be a pediatrician until I uh, ended up on the wards in uh, Columbia Presbyterian and saw one child die, actually was not related to an infection, but a form of, of uh, cancer. And I, the, the consequences to the family was devastating. So the consequences of a child dying is absolutely devastating. And we know there have been over 400 deaths in, in children ages five and under uh, from COVID-19, which is a substantial number as high as the most severe uh, outbreaks of influenza. So uh, for that reason alone, I think I am strongly in favor of the vaccine. The other in support, the problem, as Bill alluded to, is they didn't have a high attack rate. In other words, not many of the children that were vaccinated got infected, so it's very hard to show efficacy when the activity of disease is relatively low. However, if you look at the antibody levels, particularly after the second booster with the Moderna, they are very high antibody levels, levels that in other populations have been shown to be highly protective. So I think there's every reason to believe that this vaccine will be effective at preventing hospitalizations and death. The other point to keep in mind is that those under age five uh, when are, are, have a higher risk of being hospitalized and they also, one in four that are admitted end up in the medical intensive care unit, which is also uh, can, be, uh, can lead to death. So for all those reasons, I, I do strong, and the safety profile is, is really good, excellent. So for all those reasons, I personally am in favor, and the uh, outside body it was unanimous decision recommending uh, the release of the vaccine, of the vaccine. So... Uh, that, that's my take on the vaccines. With regards to BA4 and BA5, uh, they have further mutations and appear to uh, escape uh, the original immune response, particularly to the Omicron, the BA1. It turns out that when they look at the protection, if you happen to have BA1 and then you get BA4 or 5, it's as though you didn't, were not infected. With, and you have virtually no immunity. When it comes to the vaccines, there's some uh, uh, protection, but it's not to the same extent as before. Uh, so uh, as these have come in, they are taking, they can infect the uh, immunized population. And I think a good case can be made uh, for what Moderna is doing uh, is uh, creating a booster that actually has all of the Omicron very uh, mutations in it in addition to the original strains because I think the vaccine uh, there seems to be a lack of recognition of these BA4 and BA5 with the standard vaccination. What we're hearing on that is that the the FDA advisory committee is going to meet possibly informally because they've already said that they don't need a formal uh, study 
to approve a reformulation to include the the Omicron uh, variants into the vaccine. But they're going to make a decision on that by early next month is what they've said. And the reason for that is manufacturing driven. They need to have a decision by the first half of July in order to adequately have adequate time to manufacture for early fall, with the idea being that before we get back into the next cold and flu season, that we would have this enhanced booster. It's really, in many ways, a new vaccine. But I think everyone will call it a a booster that has an Omicron component to it. I think that's that's going to be very important. Yes, I agree, Bill. And and what's going to happen is it's when people go are crowded into a closed spaces, public environments with closed spaces, that the virus is spread. So right now in Florida, we're seeing a significant surge because it's so hot here. Everybody is inside. Uh, for a lot of the Northeast and up in the upper Midwest and, and uh, Northwest, um, the cold weather will drive people in. So fall is a good time for that uh, new booster to be uh, given. And the other key point that we've learned now is it appears that after about six months, um, these the shots, even the booster, the immunity does seem to uh, wane to a significant degree. So you are not as protected. Well, and importantly, it's it's immunity against symptomatic disease wanes significantly. Almost, and, and many people feel like it pretty much goes away. But immunity against severe disease, hospitalization, and death is still fairly is fairly high. So the the other big vaccine news is that Novavax was uh, recommended for approval. That is, to the best of my knowledge, the FDA has not formally approved that. Um, initially, and as we had, I think we even had talked about it on this podcast, um, we felt like that wasn't going to be a big deal. But the CDC has done some surveys of people who are vaccine refusers, and they've actually got a third to one half of people who refused the mRNA vaccine said that they would consider Novavax. Novavax is still a somewhat novel vaccine, but it's it is much more closer to a traditional vaccine uh, than the mRNA vaccines are. So if we could get another one third to one half of the, you know, roughly thirty percent of uh, of Americans who have refused vaccine, that would that would be very, very helpful in getting us to a higher level of, I'm not going to use the, I guess I'll use the term herd immunity. We're not going to, we're not ever going to see full herd immunity, but it's going to get us closer to a large population-based immunity than we are now. Yeah, I agree. The, the, I, I know a number of people that are afraid of the mRNA vaccine. Uh, they just don't like anything genetic. These are the usual people also that don't want to eat genetically modified uh, crops, uh, food made from those crops. So there is this paranoia about molecular biology. It's, I think it's unfounded, but hey, if they don't want to take it because of that, uh, it'd really be good to have this tr- more traditional vaccine, uh, protein-based. And so I, I agree. I think we will get more people vaccinated uh, if that is released. One of the things that we're certainly experiencing it uh, amongst uh many of our clients and the employees, uh, a lot of people are coming down with what I'll refer to as cold-like symptoms, which uh, are consistent, obviously, with uh, some of the symptoms around COVID. And so there's a fair amount of 
uh, concern, a lot of testing going on, kiosks everywhere uh, in New York on street corners. Uh, what can you uh, tell us, or more importantly, what can you tell the audience uh, about how they should be thinking about uh, cold-like symptoms and COVID? So, David, that's right. People are getting lots of colds and flu symptoms that, unfortunately, we have to say may or may not be COVID. The issue is that over the past two years, people have been masking, washing their hands, uh, practicing social distancing, avoiding crowds. So we haven't had the normal sharing of adenoviruses and other coronaviruses that cause the typical colds. In both of those cases, people do not develop long-lived immunity. It's typically about you know, four to six months of immunity to these adenoviruses and, and other cold viruses. So now, as people are going back out kind of normal, you know, taking their masks off, going to parties and clubs and what have you, a lot of these typical, what we would think of as, as fall and winter viruses are spreading like wildfire through the community. But at the same time, we do have COVID out there. And sometimes the COVID tests, especially the antigen tests, aren't quite as sensitive against the newer variants of the, as they have been against the older. Or it's just that because people have some degree of immunity, they don't have as much viral load in their nose and throat. So the tests are not as accurate. So the bottom line is if you've got cold or flu symptoms, go ahead and test. If it's positive, yep, you've got COVID. If it's negative, maybe, maybe not. You just, you can't be sure. So what I always recommend to people is if you have cold and flu symptoms, isolate. Stay away from other people. Don't spread it. You know, if it's COVID, you don't want to spread it. But even if it's not COVID, you don't want to be spreading it. Um, nobody wants to get a cold or flu. So uh, it's, it's, we're at a little bit of a difficult time with this right now, but it'll probably be a month or so, and then we'll have, have spread it all around everybody again. Yeah, I agree. Actually, my wife got a cold from our, one of our grandchildren, and we were worried that it might be COVID. Uh, we did an antigen test. It was clearly negative, and uh, she's steadily getting better. One of the tip-offs often is that uh, COVID-19 tends to, you tend to feel quite fatigued. Fatigue is one of the most significant, and more so than with the routine cold, and you also are more likely to have a fever. So I think those are two things that should alert you, uh, make you more concerned about COVID. But there is tremendous overlap between all the rhinoviruses, the other coronaviruses, and the SARS-CoV-2. So um, it's really a difficult, there's no way to clinically differentiate. The only way is, is to do the antigen test. The good news, if your antigen test is negative, it's likely that the inoculum in your nasopharynx is lower and therefore you're less likely to be infectious. But I agree with you, who wants to give anybody any cold? So I think you should uh, isolate yourself temporarily, stay a little bit uh, distant and possibly wear a mask, depending on how ill you feel. Yeah, and when I talk with companies about this, I'm really saying that, that we need to be using this as a teaching moment so that we get away from the, uh, the the old philosophy that you come to work no matter what. No, don't come to work if you're sick, especially if you're in a position where you can work from home. Now, that doesn't apply to everybody. But if you're in a position where you don't have to be there, don't be there if you've got cold or flu symptoms. 
Exactly, and we, we really have so much uh, better virtual programs now so that you can still get work done at home in most cases. Not all cases, but in most cases. And I think it's really important not to come to work if you're sick. Fred, Bill, uh, as you're looking out uh, a bit into the near term, uh, what else should we be thinking about and uh, looking for? So the other uh, news item from the last two weeks is that beginning beginning this week, uh, there is no requirement to test for COVID to fly into the United States. The CDC this week dropped any testing requirement, not only for those who've been vaccinated, but they just dropped the testing requirement, saying that at this point, it's COVID is ubiquitous and it's not really meaningful to test people and deny them entry based on that. I think that's probably reasonable um, because we're actually the United States has one of the highest uh, prevalence rates of COVID anyway. So what are we keeping out? Um, so I think that's but that's something that'll make it'll make travel much easier. Yeah, the one one worry I have, Bill, is that as we've talked about uh, many times, the airplane is a very closed environment with a high number of people in a very small area. And as long as the filtration, the HIPAA filtration system, which is very effective, is on, I think you're pretty safe. But when the jet engines are shut off, that filtration system is generally also shut off. So there is a period during boarding and a period during uh, when you're uh, coming off the plane where you are going to be at risk. And since no one is wearing masks, I think that risk is considerably higher than it has been in the past. I personally, when I fly, uh, which isn't very often, I'm wearing an N95 uh, because of this risk. And I'm I'm with you. I'm not, I'm even though I tend to be a little bit more uh, laissez-faire with my approach to to COVID uh, protection for myself. I'm wearing a mask in the airport, I'm boarding the plane, and I keep it on until the plane starts, which is usually after pushback, the engines start, and then I put it back on again when they hit the brakes at the at the gate. Because then at that during the the boarding and the the deplaning, it's you're one on top of another. So I why take a chance? It's easy enough to put a mask on for those few minutes. Well, you know, it, it's it's infectiousness is is relatively low. It may be spread by droplets. It's predominantly by open skin lesions. Now, obviously, if you have open blisters, you're not going to want to get near anybody. So. Uh, it's predominantly spread when you are symptomatic. There isn't a long asymptomatic carrier state. Therefore, it's very un very different from COVID. Uh, so that I think the likelihood of it spreading uh, in to a large number of people is very, very low. Um, it's, it's pretty unattractive when you get it, uh, but it is uh, self-limiting. And as we talked about before, it's very rare to, to cause a fatality. Once again, I can't thank you guys enough uh, for spending time with us. And obviously, uh, in between these sessions, you you guys are spending a lot of time looking at the data, speaking to people. And so it, it truly is uh, terrifically helpful to be able to leverage uh, your insights and obviously your, your broader perspectives. Thanks again. and look forward to speaking uh, in about two weeks. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. 
Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents such as pandemics. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more, visit rainnetwork.com slash join. That's R-A-N-E network.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. <laughs>